I am glad to be here. As I tell you each time that I come, I pray, my, Yvonne and I pray for you every day. And so when I look into your faces, uh, to me it's an answer to prayer. That This is something that God has uh, uniquely done. Uh, the church, the seminary, the radio ministry, and uh, the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, nothing could thrill a father or mother's heart more than, as the Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. So I'm, we're glad to share with you God's precious word. I might say this is the 50th year of missions to military. In 1958, Yvonne and I moved to Norfolk, Virginia, the largest naval base in the world, to begin the ministry. And as uh, someone here told me, he said, I graduated from the academy, Naval Academy, and I was assigned to East Main Street when uh, there was killings almost every night and uh, bar after bar after bar. And uh, missions to military then was, clo- was uh, stationed right at the gates of hell. I probably have more time in the streets of East Main Street than any policeman in town because night after night it was our privilege and joy to rescue uh, sailors out of those mouths of lions and, and to share with them the claims of Jesus Christ. So it's been a great, great privilege over these many years to win and train the military for Jesus Christ. Uh, During the Vietnam War, we operated the Military Christian Center in Hay Street in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And Hay Street was about like Main Street. Uh, There was fighting every night. The special forces, men from uh, going to Vietnam, you know, escaping the jaws of death and coming back and spending their money and broken glass. And I'm glad that that place was there because a young soldier used to come in His name was Sam Winchester, and enjoy the facilities of missions to militaries. He uh, had a place of refuge. I think of another young couple that came. Their name is Rodriguez, Joel Rodriguez. He's second in command of Campus Crusade military ministry, but he and his wife, he was then a lieutenant, came to the Uh, to that center in Fayetteville night after night and finally they accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior went on to become a colonel in the army and lived a very uh, godly life in the military and and, uh, now has another ministry and so the ministry of missions the military has been a ministry of uh, helping young people find their purpose in life where did I come from what am I doing here and where will I go when I leave Yvonne and I were in Ohio, and it was my privilege to, uh, to meet a nurse who works with the soldiers who uh, are uh, invisibly wounded. They call it depression, post-trauma depression, PTSD. I said to her, does it make a difference if a person is a Christian to recover? She said, you will never believe the difference of those troops that recover from this great depression if they know Jesus Christ as their Savior. So it is a great joy to be involved in a ministry that, of changing lives. And, uh, and it's because people like you pray for us.
Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Philippians. I've titled this Grace in Caesar's Household. That might seem like a strange place for the grace of God, Caesar's household, for Nero was on the throne, probably one of the most cruel, one of the most cruel Caesars that uh, uh, lived in Rome. And yet God, in his marvelous grace, was going to do something special, uh, that uh, the truth, the eternal truth of the gospel, in 30 years could reach from the city of Jerusalem to the courts of Caesar. And it's nothing but a thrilling story as you read the book of Acts, how God accomplished this. So in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, if your Bibles are open, let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for thy word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway. I pray that you'll quicken our thoughts together. Might Jesus Christ be exalted as we share together from the sacred pages of your book. Thank you for the privilege of sharing together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Philippians chapter 1, let's begin reading in verse 8. For God is my record how greatly I long after you in the affections of Jesus Christ. In this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel or actually have turned out for the advance of the gospel is what he is saying. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace, in all other places, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Before us in this little epistle, the book of Philippians, just 104 verses, so Christocentric, 51 times he mentions the person of Jesus Christ over and over again. This song in the night uh, that takes him back 10 years when he was in jail. Paul and Silas. Can't imagine what it was like. But, uh, but as the Apostle Paul picks up the pen of inspiration to write to these dear people, it's first of all a receipt letter. Because in chapter 4, verse 8, 9, and 10, he tells them, thank you for, uh, for this gift that you have sent by Epaphroditus. And, and so the Apostle Paul, as a good missionary, sends his letter, of this thank you note to them, and expresses his joy that they are partners with him. And so this mutual love between the Apostle Paul and the Philippians, which had been growing over the years because of all the Pauline churches, the church of Philippi had a missionary vision that the other churches did not seem to have. The the church at Antioch rose against above Judaism, uh, but only bid them seemingly farewell as they launched the two first missionaries. But not so with, with the church at Philippi. They uh, were willing supporters of this missionary. And so they gave very liberally to him time and again, even at Thessalonica. And here in Rome, someone paid the, uh, the rental for uh, this apartment where the Apostle Paul was living. And possibly that was the church at Philippi. I really don't know. But uh, 
The Apostle Paul responds to them with great joy. And uh, he says to them, I just want you to understand that the things which have been happening to me in Rome, and I know that you're concerned, but they have really been to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the great joy and the thrill of my life, even though I'm here in Rome. And I think that as Paul is saying this to the church at Rome, he's thinking back about three years before when he wrote to the church at Rome. I should say he's, he's writing this to the Philippians, but when he wrote his letter to the Romans, he said, I, I want you to pray for me that I might have a prosperous journey to Rome, that I might come with joy in the will of God and that you might be refreshed. That's how he closes the book of Romans. He opens the book of Romans in chapter 1, verse 10 by saying, I, I, I make this request, if by any means, how I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. The question I ask as I read this, did God really give him a prosperous journey to Rome? Did God really answer these prayers that he'd uttered three years before? And of course, the answer is yes. And it's only Luke who unfolds the answer to, to this prayer request. But as Paul writes to these dear Philippians, he is saying in essence, I am here in Rome, the golden milestone of the Roman Empire. I am in the midst of a people group, the unique domain, this elite leadership of the Praetorium Guard. 9,000 centurions are just up there in the hill. And it is my privilege day after day to witness to these people. And to be honest with you, you dear people in Philippi, I couldn't even ask you to speed up my trial because God has given me such a wonderful ministry here in Rome, a ministry that I never dreamed possible, but it's become a reality as day after day I have the opportunity of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I've read between the lines just a little bit as he says that I want you to understand what's happened to me, but take your Bibles and turn with me and let Luke fill in those empty spots. For instance, if you would take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, put one finger there, and then put your other finger on the other side of Acts chapter 12. And you know, if you hold up your Bible, you only have about three pages. In the book of Acts, chapter 9, chapter 9 is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. That conversion was very important because more space is given to the, con- uh, to the conversion of the Apostle Paul than any other subject except the, the death, burial, and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Three times the Apostle Paul's testimony is given as you read the book of Acts. And so as you look at chapter 9, here is the great turning point, probably the greatest apostle, the greatest missionary statesman of the church has been wonderfully converted on the road to Damascus. And so as you look at his testimony, you can but say, praise be to God. But then as you turn the pages, you turn to Acts chapter 10. And here is a model soldier that is saved. His name is Cornelius. By the way, in chapter 8, an Ethiopian is saved. Have you ever asked 
Why did God in chapter 8 save an Ethiopian? Chapter 9, the Apostle Paul. Chapter 10, a Roman soldier. I think God is saying, in essence, he loves the world. Because in chapter 8, a descendant of Ham is saved, an Ethiopian. In chapter 9, a descendant of Shem. In chapter 10, a descendant of Japheth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God is opening the door of the gospel to the world. And so in these chapters, 9 through 12, just three pages, really have 15 years of history. The Apostle Paul was converted, and he began his postgraduate study on the backside of uh, the Arabian Desert. He went to Jerusalem for about 15 days and uh, stirred up a hornet's nest, and the disciples said, probably it would be better if you went back to Tarsus. And in chapter 9, verse 30, he, they took him to Caesarea, and the Apostle Paul was sent back to Tarsus, and he was there for several years, maybe seven or eight years. And so that's what happened in these 15 years in the life of the Apostle Paul as God was preparing this unique missionary for the task that was at hand. Now when you come to Acts chapter 13, that's where your other finger is, turn in your pages of your Bible to Acts chapter 21. Because in, from Acts chapter 13 to Acts chapter 21, you have 10 years of ministry of the Apostle Paul. The three missionary journeys. The Apostle Paul, after this preliminary preparation for preaching the gospel, goes to Cyprus, to Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Derbe, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus. Strategically, he was hitting the very high spots. He was always a strategist. He was always looking for opportunities. And so he would go into a city. He would preach in the synagogue. He would witness to the people. He would win them to Jesus Christ and then say, I want to meet you on Sunday morning in someone's home. He established a fellowship, a little church. He ordained deacons and, and elders. And, and then he moved on to another city. And he did this for 10 years. The location of the ministry of the Apostle Paul was in a city, planting a church, giving his life for it. And as you read those chapters, you read how that night and day he witnessed to people with tears, with compassion. He, he reminded them, I've not come to you with excellency of speech, lest your faith should stand in the wisdom of men, but I've come to you in demonstration and power of the Spirit of God. And so wherever Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. He turned the city upside down. He threatened the paganism of the city. The Apostle Paul was a unique individual, and I'm always at awe how he extracted the power of God from his weakness. That's always challenged me. And as I read the life of the Apostle Paul, he was never impressed on the things that God had used him to do. But he was always challenged by what lie ahead. And after all, yesterday is a canceled note. Don't count on it. Tomorrow's a promissory note. Don't count that on either. But today is ready cash. Spend it. 
That's the way Paul lived. Every day was an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Paul strategically looked at the known world and he said, well, Antioch of Syria, that's the heart of Asia. Why Ephesus, uh, that's another heart of Asia. And, uh, but if I could only get to Corinth and Athens, well, that's the heart of Greece. But there's one place that I really want to go, and that's Rome. So as you hold those three or four pages of 10 years of ministry of the Apostle Paul in his three missionary journeys, if you look back at chapter 19, verse 21, he unveils a fresh burden in his heart. Acts 19, verse 21. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after that, after I've been there, I must see Rome. That was his passion. I thank God, he says, for the call to Europe, for that one who said, come on over to Macedonia and help me. I'm glad for all the opportunities that that have been in my past, but there's one longing desire I have, and that's the golden milestone at Rome. If I could get to Rome, I could reach the world. That's the hub of the Roman world. Everything that happens in the Roman world starts in the palace, and people carry the message of Rome to the rest of the world, and I want to be there. So in Acts chapter 19, he shares his passion. And we have to leave it up to Luke to describe or explain the providence of God and how Paul was going to one day arrive in the city of Rome. In Acts chapter 23, verse 10, a great turning point, Acts 23, 10, takes place in the life of the apostle Paul. He had prayed Romans chapter 15, Lord, when I get to Jerusalem, pray that they'll accept my offering. Pray that I I can be befriended by those dear people. Uh, Pray that I'll be a blessing to them. But then as you course through the book of Acts and you, you come to chapter 23, you discover that anything but acceptance has been the life of the apostle Paul in Jerusalem. Because as he stands before a mob, They're threatening to kill him. They're threatening to pull him apart. In Acts chapter 23, verse 10, when uh, the soldiers saw that the Pharisees on one side and the Sadducees were on the other side, and and they uh, they were desirous of just getting a hold of that little Jew, the Bible says, and when there arose that great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should be pulled in pieces, uh, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring them into the castle. The narrow escape of the life of the Apostle Paul, this little incident was the beginning of a new approach for the ministry of Paul. It's interesting to me that from now on, the Roman government is going to be the protectorate of the gospel and is going to be the protectorate of the Apostle Paul. The Jews had rejected him. The Gentiles had accepted him at this moment. And so in... 23, Acts 23, verse 11. And the night following, after rescued by the soldiers, the Lord stood by Paul and said to him, you must bear witness in Rome. 
I can't imagine how the heart of Paul must have fluttered. As he had come back to Jerusalem, I think in his mind had been a prayer, Oh God, in your providence, how am I ever going to get to Rome? I really don't have money for the trip. I I don't have a mechanism to get there. Lord, I don't understand how you can possibly get me to Rome. But Lord, that's my burden. And now it's confirmed in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. God is saying to him, Paul, you must be a witness of me in Rome. Interesting that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And why is it, verse 29 says, because he wants to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus. And you know, as you walk down life's pathway and you knock on the door and you say, Lord, is this the door you want us to go through? You know, I've asked that question over and over again in raising children, in ministry, in opportunities, uh, doors that were open, doors that were closed and a window open, opportunities. Paul was just as human as we are. But the thing about the Apostle Paul was discernment and willingness and availability and flexibility. And, and I'm awed that I see this little person who was so captivated that when he, by the love of Christ, he said in Romans 1.15, he said, I am ready to preach the gospel in Rome. He told him up front. He said, I'm ready to come. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so the apostle Paul lived that way. And God opened one door after another for him. But now, he's in Caesarea. He's been rescued. Well, I say, I should say he was rescued and he's going to be sent to Caesarea in a way that he never dreamed. For if you turn over your page there, Acts chapter 23, verse 23, it tells of a, a royal send-off. In Acts 23, 23, uh, this centurion called two centurions saying, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea and horsemen, 70, three score and 10, spearmen 200, and the third hour of the night, nine o'clock at night, Think of that. Here is the Apostle Paul. He has been torn apart from from stem to stern, you might say, rescued by Roman soldiers. And now 470 soldiers at 9 o'clock at night is going to carry the Apostle Paul out of the city of Jerusalem to the city of Caesarea. And there he's going to be in prison for two years. See, a plot was discovered that uh, by his nephew, told the centurion they're going to kill Paul. And, and so the, the centurion wanted to protect Paul by the grace of God. And so in the night, a flight to Caesarea. And there he is incarcerated for two years. Now this experience in Caesarea, this deliverance was a great turning point in the life of the Apostle Paul because from now on, His ministry is not going to be centered in a local church. It's going to be in a local army garrison. It's going to be in a rented house. It's going to be soldiers. The Apostle Paul has not changed his ecclesiology. The Apostle Paul has not changed his theology. He has not changed his purpose. But the Apostle Paul now for the next five years is going to be the first missionary to the military. 
He gave five years to administrate to the military because he was willing to be flexible to an opportunity that he never dreamed of. How could a Jew reach Roman soldiers? He isn't in the army. So how could he possibly have access to witness to them about Jesus Christ? In God's wonderful promise and plan and providence, it all happened because he was chained to one soldier after another for the next five years. And so that became his great opportunity to be a witness to the Roman soldiers one after another. And so as you come to the book of Acts, to the close, turn with me to chapter 28. The apostle Paul had one prayer, Lord, send me to Rome. How's it going to happen? You ask for a a prosperous journey. Is that going to happen? Well, Paul would say to the Philippians, you'll never believe what happened. I had a prosperous journey. The Roman government paid my ticket. They gave me someone to witness to every day. They fed me on board. They protected me. Everything that I'd more than wanted has happened in these these months that are past. Before the apostle Paul left, those two years, we don't know if he was chained to a soldier, but we know that he was guarded by soldiers every day in Caesarea. Can you imagine what it would mean to be handcuffed to this apostle? You're an uncouth, unregenerate Roman soldier, polytheistic, many gods, whatever. And all of a sudden, for six hours at your assignment to be handcuffed to this little Jew. Can you imagine what would happen? As the Apostle Paul would get acquainted with him, he would then begin to tell him about one day, I was going down the road to Damascus. A bright light shone from heaven. I didn't mind that Jesus was a carpenter. I didn't mind that Jesus was crucified. But what what bothered me is that this Jesus who was crucified rose from the grave the third day, and they say that he's alive. That couldn't possibly be true. So I persecuted everyone. I hailed them. I killed them. I voted against them. But that day on the road to Damascus, a bright light shone from heaven. And who spoke to me but none other than the risen Lord of glory. And I've come to learning to know him personally as my Savior. And he's changed my whole life. And on and on he would tell that Roman soldier and tell that story over and over again. Can you imagine how many times he had an opportunity to witness in two years in Caesarea? And then I come to Acts chapter 28, and the Bible says in Acts 28 verse 30, and Paul dwelt two whole years in his own house and received all that came to him. What was his condition in that rented house? Well, it tells us, Acts 28, 16. And when they came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. Every six hours, that guard changed. Every six hours, he had a new centurion now to witness to. That centurion was just one of 9,000 that was up at the praetorium, up in the barracks. And one after another, those men would come down 
and take their post to, uh, uh, to guard the Apostle Paul. And uh, one after another, he had an opportunity to tell them the greatest story that was ever told. Do you know that if you just count up those five years, a change of guard every six hours, he must have had something like 7,000 witnessing opportunities to one centurion, one soldier after another in those five years. 7,000 witnessing opportunities. I think if you had multiply that by the hours that were with him, I think he probably had 36,000 hours of teaching. I think his rented house was something even better than the school of Tyrannus in Ephesus. As soldiers came one after another, day after day, can you imagine what it would be like, again I say, to be in the presence of the Apostle Paul as he speaks of the citizenship in heaven, as he uses words like forgiveness, redemption, salvation, eternal life, the judgment seat of Christ, the empty tomb. I imagine at the end of the day when, when the people would leave his little apartment, that, that Roman soldier would come to him and say, would you explain to me what it means to be born again? You'd use that term. Can you imagine what it would mean? I, I, before the service, I, I was reading chapter uh, 1 of the book of Ephesians. Just let me read it to you. Can you imagine what a Roman soldier chained would feel like listening to someone pray to the eternal and unseen like this? I cease not to give thanks for you, Ephesians, making mention of my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, that the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling. And Father, they might know the power of the resurrection. They might know the inheritance that you have in the saints, that they might know the exceeding greatness of your power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, far above principalities and powers. And I can't imagine what a Roman soldier listening to the Apostle Paul. In fact, in Ephesians 3, when he prayed, he said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father. And in essence, he probably had to say that Roman soldier, would you just come over here a little closer because I want to get down on my knees and I want to pray. Can you imagine what it would be like to listen to him dictate the book of Colossians to someone who was writing it? Or can you imagine what happens going through their minds when they saw Onesimus come and go? And all of a sudden, he listens to the gospel. He's an escapee. He's a slave. But now he's transformed. And Paul is going to send him back to Philemon. I can't believe what's happened in Onesimus' life. And so the months roll on, and the apostle Paul using every opportunity that God has given to him. If I were in Paul's place, I would look at it as opposition. In my frailties, I'd probably say, God, I've committed my life to ministry to you. Lord, I've given my life. Lord, I've just said I'll go any place you want me to go, but Lord, I never thought that you'd handcuff me for five years I just never thought that you would treat one of your children like this. Uh, Lord, why is it that you don't treat me better? Here I am, incarcerated. It's all I've known. What made the Apostle Paul such a great 
missionary. In seeing his circumstances, he never saw them as opposition, but he saw each circumstance as an opportunity. Not as a weight, but as a wing. The Apostle Paul was flexible. He was available. He was committed. He was willing. And because of his willingness, because of his availability, God used him to win hundreds of those soldiers to Jesus Christ. If you read Schaff's history or Linsky's commentary in the book of Acts, you'd read that this probably was one, if not the most fruitful time in the life of the Apostle Paul. As I look back on 50 years of ministry, I think of thousands, thousands of soldiers and sailors and Marines and Coast Guardsmen that have come through missions to military in our different centers. In France, French military, in Ukraine, Russian and Ukrainian soldiers, family camping down by the Black Sea. And you know, I stand here, I could not be more amazed at the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives. And I'm mindful as I look into the, to the eyes of a soldier or a sailor or a Marine, or as I look into your eyes, I know that God has put you into an office. He's put you in a shop. He's put you into a classroom. He's put you into a difficult situation. And maybe you're saying, God, why did you put me here? God put you there. Why did he put you there? Because he wants to teach you that in the grace of God, you can soar above the circumstances. And God can use your life as a testimony, as a witness. In spite of opposition, make it a stepping stone, an opportunity, a lifetime of opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. God is no respecter of persons. And oh, to the world, it looks foolish. Yes, it looks unreasonable. It looks irrational. It looks nonsensical that God would send his son into a hostile world, antagonistic, adversarial world, so humbly. Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, he laid aside his independent exercise of his divine attributes. He veiled the effulgence of his own glory to redeem you, to redeem me. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. The Apostle Paul never got used to that. No wonder we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Blind, but now I see. I cannot believe that there was any Roman general that walked the cobblestones of Rome any more convinced and positive than the Apostle Paul. He was on a winning team. He was triumphant. He was in Jesus Christ. He was there for the furtherance, the advance of the gospel. Let me ask you a question.
Is your life committed to the advancement of the gospel? Are you investing your life to advance the gospel in the unique place that God has put you? You're there for the furtherance of the gospel. God wants to use you. He said, but I'm nobody. Yes, but you're somebody. You're a child of the king. You have royal blood flowing through your veins if you belong to Jesus Christ. You're destined for heaven. You're his, and he is yours forever and ever and ever. And nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Romans 5 has rescued you from the guilt of sin. Romans 6 has rescued you from the power of sin. And why? So that in Romans 8, you might live above the storm. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you ask or think. Would you let him work in your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message of the cross. We are debtors, debtors of thy grace, but triumphant, though frail in ourselves, because you loved us and brought us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray.